good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Please turn tonight to Psalm 131. This very brief song of degrees. Again, we have in the title the Song of Degrees of David. Very brief. And yet, as so often is the case in the Word of God, his brevity packs a, a very strong punch of challenge uh, to our hearts again tonight. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty. Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. Let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth and for ever. Amen. May God indeed bless his word uh, to your hearts and for our good tonight. One of the features of indeed many of the Psalms is the strength of personal testimony of the psalmist. Now, we understand that the Psalms are a a book, a collection of corporate worship songs. Uh, They are songs for the people of God to to sing in company and and to worship God in that corporate sense. But they are at times reflections of an intense personal walk with the Lord. The regular use of I, me, my, and mine indicate that true faith for the child of God involves God being their God in a very personal and in an intimate fashion. Yet, what you note as you continue in that thought, what you note from those Psalms is that they are often used. They're often used to then encourage others in the way of faith. It opens with a personal account of humility. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty, etc. And then in verse 3, it finishes with an exhortation to the people of God. Let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth and forever. I believe firmly that the exhortation arises out of the testimony Because verse 1 and 2 are true, therefore the psalmist gives the exhortation of verse 3. And that's where the challenge arises in understanding this psalm. Because verse 1 and 2 clearly presents a testimony of God leading the child of God in the path of humility. And yet verse 3 doesn't say let Israel be humble before the Lord, but let Israel hope in the Lord. And so I do believe there's a connection, because that's the pattern of the Psalms. They're connected. Again, sometimes we look at the writings of Paul, and we see all the therefores and the fours, and we, and we see all the logical connection, and we read the poetry, and we presume the poetry is not logical. Poetry can be logical and also be artistic. 
And I believe that the poems of the psalmist are poems of solid theology, and there is a logical connection. But understand that connection is key to understanding the psalm. And so if that's all true, then there must be this connection of the subjects between humility and hope. And so let's look at this subject of humility and hope. And we'll do so just by working our way through the verse of the psalm. And to begin with, notice, note there is a denial of pride. In verse 1, you have a threefold denial, three negatives, whereby the psalmist makes a very strong personal testimony that he is not guilty of harboring pride in his heart, in his attitudes, or in his actions. John Gill, the commentator, uh, in a thought that is actually echoed by Spurgeon uh, in the treasure of David, suggests that this psalm was penned by David as a young man in Saul's court. Maybe the case. Uh, one of the times when David had the opportunity to, to take Saul's life, First Samuel 14, and there's a reference by David that people were talking that he sought to hurt Saul. And he says to Saul, why do you hear the people who, who say, in essence, that I'm trying to, to harm you? And thus there was the implication that there's an accusation going about that David sought position and prominence. One of his brothers accused him when he came to the battle with Goliath of being conceited, having pride in his soul. And so the accusation was that David was seeking position and prominence. He was ambitious of the crown, aspiring to the throne, and was plotting against Saul, the, the king. Of course, we know that was not the case. It's fascinating to see, and it, it certainly fits the psalm well. Hard to prove emphatically, but the history of David that we do have very clearly shows us a humility in David, who was, of course, the Lord's anointed. And yet he had a very clear heart of humility as he did fight Goliath and find himself in the place of the king of Israel. And so he says regarding his heart, My heart is not haughty. Well, the word haughty speaks of a heart that is lifted up. Or regarding Hezekiah said, But Hezekiah rendered not again according to the benefit done unto him, for his heart was lifted up. In the same term. The heart was lifted up. His heart was haughty. The same word are used as there is in Psalm 131. And the psalmist is saying, Well, my heart is not haughty. But turn over to uh, Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs 18, and I just want to show you that this word haughty does indeed indicate pride. Um, we'll see it here in the Proverbs 18, the verse number 12, where it says, Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, and before honor is humility. And so here you find a very important way to define words uh, in, in our Bibles, and that is by the use of the opposite. And so haughty is used in the parallel, and then humility in the second part. So haughty is the opposite of humility. And so David is saying in the Psalm 131 that he's not. He's not haughty in his heart. I think that's important to begin there. Because you can have someone who shows a measure of humility in how they conduct themselves. They've learned to, to look humble. And so they may walk into a room and they'll keep their eyes on the ground and they'll appear to be self-effacing. But in their hearts, they may be proud of the appearance of their humility. 
And so the psalmist is here saying, no, no my, my humility is it's, it's heart humility. It's the very core of my being. And yes, we'll see what comes out of that. But he is not a man who is full of his own importance. He does not have an inflated view of his own position. You know, we turn over to, to 1 Corinthians 4 and the verse number 7. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And it's this phrase here. And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? And that is a statement that can be taken in the absolute. Oh yes, he's talking about grace here. He's talking about spiritual reception of gifts. But it's true for everything. You brought nothing into this world. Nothing. So that means everything you have, you received. as a gift from God. But for the Christian, they all the more are aware of the fact that if they were left to themselves, where would they be? That they are what they are, as Paul says elsewhere, by the grace of God. The very matter of conversion is a time when we realize that we are nothing in ourselves and our only hope is outside of ourselves. And if someone is proud, then they cannot be a Christian. And that's, not saying, that's not saying you can't battle with pride as a Christian. We all do. But at the very core of becoming a Christian is an emptying yourself of your self-importance and a recognizing that your only hope is outside of yourself. And that's an act of humility. And thus, in a sense, we all come to Christ as a little child. And if we don't come as a child, then there is no place for us in Christ's kingdom. So his heart is not haughty. But he goes on from that to say that his eyes are not lofty. Again, the word there is a different word from haughty, but it's a very similar idea. It speaks of, of being lifted up. It's an idiom for a proud look. It's not like the previous Psalms when the eyes are lifted up in prayer. These are eyes lifted up in arrogance. They look above others. You know, we, we used to talk about, and I'm sure you did the same here, that somebody with an, an arrogant air used to walk around with their nose in the air. That might be our modern day idiom for the Hebrew one here. The Hebrew talks about eyes being lifted up. We talk about the same thing, don't we? If your nose is in the air, your eyes are lifted up. You can't have a nose in the air, your eyes looking down at the same time. It just doesn't work. And so eyes are lifted up with an arrogant look. This is describing the attitude, the demeanor. And he said, I don't have this, this demeanor of, of, of self-importance. It's, it's not true in my heart, and therefore it's not true in my outward conduct. And so, while someone cannot judge my heart, they, they can look upon me and say, well, that's right, his eyes are not lofty. He doesn't carry himself with that arrogant demeanor. And there is a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. Proverbs chapter 30 and the verse 13, referring to a proud and arrogant generation, or Isaiah 5. And the verse 15, where it says, And the mean man shall be brought down, and the mighty man shall be humbled. And listen, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. So there is no doubt here in anybody's mind that Psalm 131 is referring to humility of heart and of attitude. Proud heart that is arrogant in demeanor is an unpleasant thing. He's generally... Generally, the unconverted delight in arrogance. Arrogance is obnoxious to the child of God. 
The child of God should respond with repulsiveness when they see arrogance in the lives of others. It is an ugly thing. It is ungodly. It is not worthy of someone who's a creature of the living God. And so you see, you, you take, we can just pause and take the Psalm 138 and you'll see how important this issue is. For Psalm 138, just a few Psalms later says, Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar off. If God detests the proud, look, it says in Proverbs, he hates the proud, look, if he hates the lifted up eyes, then surely the attitude of the child of God should be similar. We ought to detest pride. We ought to detest the lifted up eyes. And so you have the psalmist then saying in the third place, not only is his heart devoid of pride, not only his eyes show that in attitude, but he also speaks of his actions. Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. He doesn't meddle in areas that aren't his concern. He understands his role and his gifts. And if it is the case here that this is referring to David's time in Saul's court, what he's saying here is, I'm not poking my nose into the king's affairs when they're not my affairs. Humility in action. You know, the proud man or the proud woman, they believe they're an expert in everything. And they always have an opinion about everything. And here the psalmist is saying, well, no, I don't... I don't get involved in things that are too high for me. Now, I think that's, that's the foundational idea here, but I do believe there's a, a greater meaning of this in David's experience, and that is he refuses to pry into the ways of God. Great matters, things that are too high. He understands that there are aspects of God's being and God's ways that are incomprehensible. And as pride would exalt the person to the place of God... So the proud man presumes to know the mind of God and presumes to understand the ways of God. And so the psalmist he gives us denial of pride, and I hope you see that. And again, I hope we all will receive the rebuke that we need to avoid those things in our day-to-day -day experience. But in the second place, there is a description of humility then. And that's verse number two. It says, Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that has weaned his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. You have the sentence, uh, verse 2a, I have behaved and quieted myself. It describes, again, a, a determination of the psalmist not to be anxious and tumultuous, but to know peace in his soul. And he then gives a simile that pictures that sentence. He has behaved and quieted himself. He's, he's calm and he's quiet. And he therefore is like a winged child. And the winged child refers to the child that is, that is going from milk to solids. Again, that seems to be happening so quickly nowadays in our, in our culture. But in the Eastern time, that was delayed quite significantly. The child going from a, an exclusive milk diet to solids. And the period around that, uh, those of you who have been through this will know it can be a challenging time. Uh, the child, uh, they want milk. And they desire that milk and they desire their, their mother. 
And they're being weaned because what they need, they need to move on to solids because they're not sleeping properly. And they're agitated, they're hungry all the time, and, and the, the, the milk is no longer allowing them to grow. And therefore they need these solids, and, and therefore there's this anxious and agitated period. They want something, but they need something else. But then the weaned child, when they go through that period, they then become peaceful, contented, and satisfied. This peaceful child reappears. And I think that's what David's picturing for us here. He's describing, he's describing the humble man who is content with the leading of God that whilst the man may desire something, God gives what is right, and yet he is at peace with the leadings of God and with his providence. A settled, a calm disposition. A child humbly submissive to the ways of the mother. Mother knows best that mindset, and that child is submissive to that. And so that David is saying, well, I'm that sort of person. I'm content with the leading and the providential giving of God. So that's the description of this humility. It's, again, multifaceted. Again, there's a, an absence of arrogance, an absence of pride in his heart, and there's this contented spirit in the positive, a peaceful spirit. Which then leads to the third thing, which is this exhortation to hope in God. Pride is denied, humility is described, and then hope is exhorted. Let Israel hope in the Lord. Where did that come from? How do you get from verse 2 to verse 3? Well, let me suggest to you that David is giving his testimony as a means of commending a life of humility. I think he's extolling the benefits of a heart of humility. Peace, contented spirits, a quiet disposition. And he presents himself, and then he says, hope in the Lord. Thus, I believe that he is teaching us tonight that true humility arises when we hope in the Lord. He doesn't tell the people to imitate him. He doesn't tell the people to try harder to be humble. But he tells them to hope as that is the cause of true humility. Hoping in God is the very opposite of pride. To hope in the Lord is really an expression of faith. It speaks of an aspect of faith that looks to God for the future, but it also involves in the, in the Word itself, it involves a waiting on the Lord. And thus sometimes it's translated hope, other times it's translated waiting. It involves clearly then a, a confidence in the Lord. I've already said that hope arises in the regenerate heart that is through the rebirth made humble before God. The natural man is proud in all his ways. But through the rebirth, through the work of regeneration, God creates a humble disposition in our souls. And the result of that humility is to hope in God and not in self. Contentment today and confidence for tomorrow exist because we have renounced self. We're aware of our unworthiness and our sin. And hence, we are aware of our inability to do right. And therefore, we hope in God. We, we come to trust in God. But beyond that, I believe that hope 
and humility complement each other. And as the psalmist describes humility, he then does it in a way that shows that to hope in God is to hope as a humble person, and to be humble in turn will also lead to hope. These things complement each other. Hope enjoys peace. Hope enjoys contentment as it believes God's will is best. You take verse 1c in a particular sense then. That the humble person does not exercise themselves in great matters or in things too high for me. Hope is in the Lord, isn't it? Therefore, hope believes in the Lord as he is revealed, even though every question can't be answered. The humble soul is willing to hope in God, even though there may be unanswered questions. They are confident to rest in God's revelation. How can God be three persons in one Godhead? How can Christ have two natures and yet be one person? How can God be absolutely sovereign and yet we be fully responsible? Those are all questions, aren't they? And you can come to the conclusion, well, I can't answer these questions, and therefore God is not to be trusted. But the humble soul acknowledges the questions and acknowledges that they are the creature and God is the creator. They are finite, God is infinite. And thus, they will in humility hope in the Lord. And thus, they will not exercise themselves in matters that are beyond their understanding. And they will echo the sentiments of Deuteronomy 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever. Humility is essential for true hope. Because hope is in the Lord as he's revealed, even though there are things that we cannot comprehend. And yet we can still hope. You know, you can... You can put your trust in something physical in this world because you will understand the physics. You know, you take the pew you're sitting on, you understand that the angles that are used and the materials that are used, and you can answer all the questions whereby some, uh, some engineer can uh, assess the pew and they will guarantee that you will not fall through that pew. Every question is answered. There is no challenge to hope. No humility required. You can sit there as a proud, arrogant person knowing how this pew works. But when it comes to God, there is a necessity for humility. He's revealed himself in terms that we can understand, but there are things that we do not comprehend. And therefore, there is a need for humility in our hope. God is God, and we are willing not to seek to get involved in things that we cannot answer. But hope... Furthermore, believes, I believe, in God's guiding and directing hand. The people of God are encouraged to hope in the Lord from henceforth and forevermore. Hope is confident in God's will being done. We may not understand God's providence, but the humble man will not seek to dwell, delve into the hidden will of God. God plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. It describes God coming 
But I also, I believe, pictures the truth that if footsteps are in the sea, you cannot see the footsteps. And there are times we cannot trace God's ways in His providential leading. But humility will hope in God even though they cannot trace all of God's doings. Humble hope. The humility that comes with hoping in the Lord, trusting in God from henceforth and forevermore, even though there are great things that we cannot be exercised in and things that are too high for us. Again, I think we're seeing that there is a very strong connection between humility and true hope. Hope in the Lord also leads us to humbly trust our futures into God's hand. That is the humble position. The proud and the arrogant, they want everything organized. They want everything in its, in its right place. And so they are like the man in James, and they will say, we'll go to this city, and we'll buy, and we'll sell, and we'll do all this. And everything's planned and organized. I'm not against planning. But that planning and organization can be in the spirit that my future depends upon me. Rather, the child of God will say, if the Lord wills. So they'll put all of their planning under the sovereign hand of God and therefore they will humbly hope in the Lord for the future. And whatever God has for me, I will submit to his ways. I must confess, I, I, I find it a challenging connection. Where does hope fit in with humility? But when you begin to turn over your mind, you, you see that true hope in God is really an expression of true humility. And thus the psalmist is saying, humility is a blessed thing. Humility is a beautiful thing. Therefore, Israel, if you would know this humility, you must ensure that your hope is in the Lord and not in yourself. And therefore, I exhort you, as I exhorted myself today, to ensure that your hope is in God so that you would in turn walk humbly with your God. For that is what the Lord doth require of thee, isn't it? To do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Christ Jesus, of course, is the ultimate picture of one who lived a life of profound humility. He was the one who emptied himself and took the form of a servant. And he therefore says to us, hope in the Lord. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified. Thank you.